Have you ever felt a visceral attraction to a politician? There is not a liberal America and a conservative America. There is the United States of America. I am your voice. Ask yourself if they're really telling the truth. This is a secret innuendo being leaked out there about me. I was honestly concerned that he might lie about the nature of our meeting. This is Subliminally Correct, a bi-weekly podcast where we examine all the ways politicians and newsmakers are using psychological tactics to influence you every single day. And now, join myself, Taylor Sherman, certified hypnosis instructor and executive coach, along with my co-host, Alex Dobranek, political consultant and certified consulting hypnotist, on this episode of Subliminally Correct. And welcome to another episode of Subliminally Correct. Taylor, what do we have up for today? Today, we're going to be exploring politics on the world stage as we break down recent developments in the UK's exit from the European Union, which is really starting to heat up. Joining us today as our guest, we'd like to welcome back Rintu Basu. Rintu is the best-selling author of the Persuasion Skills Black Book and lives in the United Kingdom, where he's been paying close attention to the developments in Brexit. We're going to break down a little bit later a few components of a recent UK parliamentary debate on leaving the EU, specifically a speech given by Theresa May. But first, Rentu, can you give us a background on Brexit as you see it and how it's developed persuasively thus far? Yes. Hi, Taylor. Hi, Alex. Uh, good to be with you again, and um, thanks for giving me this opportunity. Brexit here is a very complicated, very unusual thing, and it's taken this country into some interesting places. So can I just, for a moment, um, give you a brief rundown of how we've got to where we are? And also, I really need to state some of my um, prejudices, I suppose, in this. I I am a Remain voter, and I'm uh, very keen for the UK to stay within uh, the European Union. It's not the bestest of organisations and it has got a lot of flaws that needs that need changing. But leaving it for the UK isn't actually really a particularly great answer, in my view. The reason I kind of want to say that to you is there's a whole slew of agendas out there in and amongst all of this stuff that make it difficult to work out where the context is for a whole lot of stuff. So it's worth letting people know where where I come from at least so that you can uh, you know take my take what I say uh, with the pinch of salt that you think it deserves if that makes sense um, now very very quickly uh, uh, trying to get through some of the some of the nuances that have happened in here the, but actually just get get you up to date really quickly the issue about brexit should never have come up in the first place and the reality is that the Tory party, the Conservatives, they're the right wing of government and they're in the, the government in power at the moment, have always had a faction that are on the extreme ends of their own party, that are Eurosceptics. They don't like being in the EU. Predominantly, they don't like it because the EU is actually quite a left wing organisation. It's socially democratic. Whatever you might hear in on the newspaper or in the media and stuff like that, it is actually quite a democratic organisation, um, considering it covers 27, 28, if you include the UK member states, that all have to have a say in everything. Um, the the extreme right wing of the Tory party absolutely hate it because it, it's fa- it has foundations in socialist principles. It, it, it wants worker rights, it wants health rights, it wants human rights. And it works along all those kind of basis uh, on that kind of basis. Um, the Tory Party have have been brought down by those Eurosceptics several times over the issues about Europe. Uh, what happened two years ago was our Prime Minister at the time, David Cameron, in an effort to appease the right wing of his party, uh, wrote in his manifesto for for. Uh, for the elections, that they would have a referendum on the EU. He actually hadn't had it really particularly well thought out because he never expected to have to do it. The trouble is he won the election. He won it quite cons- quite considerably, which then meant that he had to try and fulfil his manifesto promises 
the biggest one being about having a referendum on the EU. Um, the reality of that was that he put it into place. He didn't set up the referendum properly. If he had, what would have occurred would be that you would have to have had a supermajority agreeing to leave the EU before it would become a legal document um, and, the, and the government would have to enact it. The reason we do that is because it's actually a huge, huge constitutional change and we shouldn't really be doing things like that unless you've got a lot of the country behind it. Bottom line, David Cameron never expected to lose the referendum. Um, I don't think anyone really expected to uh, expected uh, a leave result out of the referendum, basically because on every measure that you can think of, leaving the EU is a bad thing for the for the UK. Unfortunately, what happened through that, for a whole variety of different reasons, there's a real good actual persuasive issue in here. Um, but the leave vote, the leave voters won. Only just, it's a 52 to 48 majority. So it's it's not really this will of the people thing that, that, that's been co-opted. And if the referendum had been set up properly, um, it, whilst they might have won on numbers, actually it wouldn't have enacted a constitutional change within the country. Um, even still, the referendum was only purely advisory for the government, so they don't actually have to do anything with it. But they are. And... That's another interesting little piece of persuasive bits and pieces that have been happening. Um, but the reality of it is that the Leave vote won, and that's now been co-opted by a whole lot of right-wing elements from all sorts of sides. Well, I say right-wing elements. There's a whole right-wing element that wants to leave the EU. There's actually, strangely, a whole strong left-wing element that want to leave the EU as well. From the left-wing side, they disagree with the the globalist kind of uh, mantra that comes out from the from, from the EU. Um, it does support uh, big business and it does support uh, global initiatives and stuff like that, which are anathema to, uh, if you like, the extreme left wing as well. So you have this real bizarre situation where the extremes of both of the main parties do not like Europe, whereas everyone in the, the centre sees Europe as a as a flawed entity, but actually a useful one. And um, to enact the changes that the EU really need to make, we need to be in the middle of it rather than on the outsides of it. Um, so that's essentially the melting pot that we've got here. The leave vote, uh, the leave vote won for several reasons. Um, one of the biggest ones, I think, if you look at the demographic, demographics of leave and remain voters the leave voters tend to be older and the older generation have got a lot more to to fear i think is the right phrase to use in this um what's been leveraged on them in terms of voting is actually and none of it is necessarily true but they but they use it uh the value of the pound will go down um our pension your pensions won't be worth as much um we'll have uh, a housing crisis coming on um, and a big piece of fear has been leveraged about what the EU stands for and what it what it will do to the country um, the problem that we've had in terms of the whole um, the way that the 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 referendum was presented was we had um, the leave voters working on that kind of basis um, and you also had the remain voters uh, here's an interesting point most of england voted to leave most of scotland voted to remain and i think a lot of that has to do with the way that leave and remain were uh, as options were presented to the two countries in england you could see that the that the remain campaign was mainly fear-based. It was all about what are the consequences that would happen to the country if we left the EU. Um, and they kept pushing the thing that we'd lose jobs, we'd lose money, we'd lose stability, we'd lose our standing in the, in the world. All of that is actually fairly true, but the reality of it is that all we're doing is pushing fear buttons. Now, that's a great way to get people to, if you like... Um, 
it's a it, it's it's a great enabler. But when you have the other side countering the thing with a with a whole idea of this is just project fear, this is all speculation, which it actually is. Uh, you know, uh, the big thing that the Leave campaign were doing was saying like, well, okay, we don't know that any of this is true because we haven't done it yet, and that's actually a very valid point. Um, but it's a good way of trying to point the finger at the Remain campaign and say, look, all you're doing is operating on fear. Interestingly, the campaign for Remain in Scotland, uh, Scotland was always more predisposed to Remain in Europe anyway, but um, the campaign up here was a completely different flavour. It was all about what kind of a country do you want to be? So what was happening in Scotland in the way that the Remain campaign was pitched was... Do we want a country that welcomes immigrants? Do we want a country that is that has a place and a say of, on the European table? Do we want a country that that is open? You know that can have citizens go into any one of the other twenty-eight member states to live, to work, to play, um, and to spread. You know, Scotland as a uh, as a as a country. It was very much more a positive view, if that makes sense. Um, and I I actually believe that one of the main reasons that Scotland overwhelmingly voted to stay, and they did, it was uh, 61, 62% uh, of the Scottish vote was, was to remain. I think a large percentage of that was due to the way that the, the campaign was pre- presented. It wasn't about the fear of what would happen if we, you know, if we did it. Um, but it was all about what type of a country do we want and how can we get how can we generate that is that you know can we do that by uh leaving or is it more likely that by remaining in the eu we get to have a much more powerful presence in the world yeah it's it's really interesting when you when you start to consider all of the different constituent bodies okay that are part of you know, something like the United Kingdom, right? So it's four countries, you know, England, Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. And, you know, it's the same kind of thing you might see with the U.S., right? It's like you have two coasts, you have the whole big swath in the middle, you know, you've got the north, you've got the south, you've got all of this, these different areas, and they have to somehow come to some sort of agreement. And um, I think you're right, Rintu, that there is ways that things are being presented in different areas that makes it more likely than that that particular area is going to vote a particular way. And the other thing is that they have different demographics, right? So I'm I'm curious, you know, if if uh, Scotland has different, you know, demographics. For example, uh, I don't know. Perhaps they have more of the young vote. Perhaps um, just in general, the country tends to have a certain. Um, mentality to it or something like that um would you see say that any of those would be factors that have contributed to scotland being you know much more on the remain side meaning remaining part of the eu yes absolutely there's a huge part to that um scotland scotland has a declining population and it actually really needs immigration to survive it is a huge melting pot of you know different cultures and um personalities and uh, backgrounds and heritages. There's an outlook in Scotland, which is all about to be Scottish, you just have to be here. You know, uh, it's one of the reasons why I I love this this country. It's almost like the melting pot that that I I see America originally being. You know, it's a country of uh, of immigrants that come together uh, for common cause, Scotland feels an awful lot like that to me, and it is very distinctly different from England in that respect. Um, I, I think, from an American perspective, you would see the UK as a whole as much, much more left-wing than um, than the USA. Um, if you took that, uh, you'll find that Scotland is 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 even further left-wing than. Um, England. Now, the problem that that actually causes in all of this is that the majority of the population is down in the southeast corner of the United Kingdom. Um, roughly speaking, the population of Greater London is about the same size as the population of Scotland um, in a, a much more condensed area. So you can imagine 
there is a huge amount of people in the in the bottom right hand corner of England who have the same voting privileges or, or yeah have the same voting privileges on UK wide as the whole of Scotland. What that tends to mean is that if Scotland have a diametrically opposed view to to England, they will invariably get dragged into the English view of do, and way of doing things, which is which is one of the biggest arguments for the independence movement in Scotland is not so much um, the the Scottish feel like they should have more of a say or want to take anything away from England. It's just that they can never get what they want because of this massive great voting bloc that that's in England that that's always voting in a, in a kind of uh, a different way. We would work, uh, you know, one of the best ways of changing the UK would be to make it more federal, say like. Um, say like Germany, or to becoming independent states that have uh, some kind of cohesive moment for uh, things that we need to look at on a bigger stage, say like defence, for example. Um, you know, uh, um, possibly even a much uh, a, a different working relationship, the way that, say, like federal and state governments work in the US. But uh, as it stands at the moment, um, Scotland has a regional government, uh, as does Northern Ireland and Wales as well, they, we have regional governments that have a certain amount of say in what they do, but overall control of the entire UK is based in Westminster, which which then means that the outlying districts tend to end up following whatever happens for, from a London perspective. Uh, this isn't this isn't just a problem for, for Scotland, but actually all of the regions from the UK tend to get bled dry from um, from Parliament at Westminster, and it's one of the great greatest causes of issues around that. And herein lies one of, one of the biggest uh, that's around the Brexit thing, is it seems like that southeastern corner of the UK is very anti-immigration. Now, for the most part, that's a really... They've been sold a whole bunch of lies. I can come back to that in a minute, which um, haven't got to do with the government. It actually has to do with the way that our media is set up. Um, but on the same grounds, we have Scotland here who are dependent on immigration to keep the country running. So there's competing dynamics for actually what what the needs of the country are. And right at the moment, leaving um, leaving Europe is causing considerable amounts of damage to Scotland because we simply cannot get the people. Um, that we need to to effective from for everything from you know uh, seasonal things like fruit picking or uh, or fisheries right the way through running the NHS uh, uh, sorry our national health service um, we need the people in so um, the immigration policy that that has always existed in 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 the UK has has been problematic for us up here so there's a lot of this sense of the UK. Uh, perhaps at least certain factions of it or certain areas, you know, the, um, the south of England, for example, saying, OK, we want to have borders. And there, there's a sense of uh, how many borders do we want? And, you know, as, as we know, one of the big issues um, that is currently being discussed in Brexit is this idea of uh, what they call the backstop. Now, initially, I had to look this up. OK, what is exactly does that mean? And I guess what it means is the idea that even if the uh, UK doesn't come to an agreement with the EU about leaving, that there's not going to be a hard border between uh, Ireland, the Republic of Ireland, the the separate country, and Northern Ireland, which is part of the UK. Um, so there, there's just so many, you know, things here which are, you know, moving moving through it. Yeah. We want to take a look at some of the, the speeches, the recent uh, ideas that have been talking about here. And there's particularly a speech recently where Theresa May was addressing Parliament about leaving the EU. Theresa May is currently the Prime Minister. She mm -hmm. is the head of the Conservative Party, and that is a right-leaning party. She's one of the people who is catching a ton of flack right now about um, how she's conducting the whole process. And uh, there doesn't don't seem to be too many people who are super happy with her. Right. I'm sure there are. But in, in the news, at least as I've, I've been reading it, there aren't a lot of people who are too happy with her. And um, I'm sure not in Scotland. Right. <laughs> <Rintu>. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
it comes with a course. Anyone that winds up as Prime Minister of the UK is never going to be a favorite in Scotland, to be honest. Gotcha. Okay. Well, that's that's helpful to know. All right. So let's take a listen to this uh, this speech by Theresa May. And uh, I guess my introduction to this will be um, listening to this from the perspective of an American uh, being able to actually hear to hear this. What I notice is the difference in the styles of how the parliament is conducting their business versus, let's say, the U.S. You know, uh, Congress. And, you know, one of the big things that I notice with this is just the the attitude of how people are almost expected to be raucous. They're expected to have a certain contempt for the other side. But then there are also policies that are clearly put in place to kind of uh create respect even if it's forcefully so you're going to hear this a little bit as we uh as we go go forward here so let's go ahead and take a listen to the first part of this clip we've now had three days of debate on the withdrawal agreement setting out the terms of our departure from the eu and the political declaration setting out our future relationship after we have left i've listened very carefully to what has been said in this chamber and out of it what has been said in this chamber and out of it by members from all sides. From listening to those views, it is clear that while there is broad support for many of the key aspects of the deal, on one issue, on one issue, the Northern Ireland backstop, there remains widespread and deep concern. As a result, if we went ahead and held the vote tomorrow, the deal would be rejected by a significant margin. We will therefore defer the vote scheduled for tomorrow and not proceed to divide the House at this time. And so one of the big things that I notice right here in in this speech right out the gate is that you know you can hear the sort of laughter and cat calls that you can that Taylor sort of talked about right there. And you know, to me that really serves as, you know, sort of that, that historical way of of distracting from her position and to sort of uh, you know, getting somebody uh, who might be listening to that and might be taking her seriously and might be hanging on to her words to suddenly inject doubt into their mind and to um, sort of distract their their focus. Absolutely. Um, it It's quite an interesting thing. I mean, you need to remember that sort of um, the UK, mother of all parliaments, this is where most of parliamentary democracy was taken for right the way across the world. The difficulty is that everywhere else in the world, because they were taking it from here, updated it, made it look look a lot smarter than than the 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 backwater that the UK now now is in. So effectively the Parliament works on the basis of an adversarial debate. There's no real issues around that so long as you can keep quite good control of it but people have got quite smart to some of the persuasion things that are happening here so if you notice Theresa May is actually trying to lay some frames in and those are the bits that the opposition if you like are laughing at so it it's kind of like um a game of frame laying what what can I say that the the sets out what I want to achieve out of all of this in the best kind of light and each time she does it what you've got from the opposite uh, opposite side is exactly that. They're catcalling to say, we don't agree with what you're saying. You, you know, so um, it's like if you were having a, a, a normal conversation with someone and they just, uh, every time you say something that they're not happy with, they stop you and interrupt you at that particular point. That's basically what's going on here. Right. And so let's get to the next part where she starts um, driving the conversation forward a little bit as far as she can, at least. I set out in my speech opening the debate last week the reasons why the backstop is a necessary guarantee to the people of Northern Ireland and why whatever future relationship you want, there is no deal available that does not include the backstop. Behind all those arguments are some inescapable facts. The fact that Northern Ireland shares a land border with another sovereign state. The fact the fact that the hard-won peace the fact that the hard-won peace that has been built in Northern Ireland over the last two decades has been built around a seamless border and the fact that Brexit 
will create a wholly new situation. On the 30th of March, the Northern Ireland-Ireland border will for the first time become the external frontier of the European Union's single market and customs union. The challenge, the challenge this poses must be met, not with rhetoric, but with real and workable solutions. Businesses operate across that border. People live their lives crossing and recrossing it every day. I've been there and spoken to some of those people. They do not want their everyday lives to change as a result of the decision we have taken. They do not want a return to our hard border. And if this House cares about preserving our union, it must listen to those people because our union will only endure with their consent. Now she's doing a lot of scaffolding here, a lot of uh, you know, sort of building up uh, premise, premise, premise there as people are still catcalling that. But she starts with like such solid facts that like they're undeniable. Like there's a border, there's peace because of this border. And then, uh, you know, moves in um, to build on top of that once people, uh, once they're able to quiet everybody down. Yeah, there's a beautiful one in there, actually, that, that, that she is building to. That's that one. If this house cares about Brexit, uh, about delivering Brexit, so we've now got uh, if-then loops. So uh, there is a border, there's working lives, we've... Um, uh, I've been over there and talked to them. Um, we've established a piece that's been based on on working in this kind of way. So if this house cares about delivering Brexit, we need to do X, Y, and Z. It's almost like you've you've built up this huge amount of inf um, of evidence of how things are working, and then you've gone well. If you want to keep all of that, and you want to keep peace, and you want to get, and and you also want to deliver Brexit, you have to do it my way. Yeah, and we hear that callback to the common person. You know, I've talked to those people. They don't want their everyday lives to change. And she's using that building up of premise, 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 conclusion, pace, 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 lead, right? Yeah. She starts with something that is very solid, right? Uh, the first fact is, is that, you know, Northern Ireland shares a border with another sovereign nation. You know, it's like, okay, who's going to argue with that? That's just... You know, it's it's really just just a base fact. But then she moves on to things that are slightly less solid. Can I just stop you just there? Because she's very nuanced with particular words, and there's it's that one with another sovereign nation. The whole business about Brexit was sold uh, about um, leaving the EU was sold on the on the basis of sovereignty, and yet. And so what she's kind of doing there is saying, like, there's a Republic of Ireland, a sovereign nation. There is the UK and Northern Ireland uh, as a sovereign nation. We need to preserve both. And it's being preserved by the fact that there's a soft border there. Can you see it? There's, the sovereignty issue is a big one for Brexit. And she's using that word there very, very precisely and specifically to, to not only um, give... Uh, if you like the Republic of Ireland sovereignty, but also the UK sovereignty. Yeah, it's it's a big it's a big challenge that you have basically these four countries that are united under this this label or this um, you know union called the United Kingdom. And actually, a little bit later on in this parliamentary hearing in a clip that we're not going to get to, um, but someone says, you know, I'd like to point out to you know, to Theresa May that we're actually four countries, not just one. And then she just responds saying, yeah, but we're all the United Kingdom. And so you have this this kind of odd uh, thing that does happen here with the sovereignty. And we have to also remember that in these types of debates or in these types of presentations, that there's a lot of history here. You know, one of the things in the history they refer to is the Good Friday Agreement or the Belfast Agreement, which is you know, joining an, an agreement between Northern Ireland and the Republic Ireland and between the Republic of Ireland and the UK. And it's basically saying, hey, here's, you know, we're outlining what does peace actually look like? Well, you know, how do you understand all of this without really understanding that history? And so she's kind of alluding to some of these things she goes into, she, she talks about them. And so all of this 
you know, history that comes with it, you know, can't be ignored because the slightest little thing that she says gets interpreted with all of that history coming with it. And if she chooses one version of history and not another version of history, then people start to get offended, but they might not know exactly why they're offended. They just disagree with just that idea or just that premise. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and no one, not even in our government, actually understand most most of the history here. I mean, the reality before before the referendum, uh, I, I mean, I remember some Remain campaigners were saying there's going to be a problem in Northern Ireland about, uh, about the borders. But uh, not even the Remain side, I think, really had any understanding of how big this whole Northern Ireland border would, you know, what what a big issue it was going to be until it became one. The reality is that the same is true about Gibraltar. Um, we don't mention it much because it's just a tiny, small principality that the UK perhaps really shouldn't have. But we still we have the same issues between Spain and Gibraltar, um, and the borders that are going to be that, that were going to be created there. Um, the difference with Gibraltar is that Theresa May's actually managed to resolve a fair bit of that just by giving Gibraltar back to the Spanish. Well, not completely, but legislatively, there's some there's some stuff that she's she's done there. Whereas with Northern Ireland, she can't do that because the only way of of her staying in government is that she gets the backing of the the far right um, DUP. Uh, it's the um, it's the Nationalist Party in Aus- in in Northern Ireland. She needs their backing uh, to effectively have a working government. And unfortunately, those ten votes, those those ten MPs, are demonstrably against a Northern Ireland backstop. Their their whole premise and, and and place where they're coming from is that they want Northern Ireland to be as closely aligned to the UK as possible in all circumstances and that kind of means that the backstop treats them differently and they don't want it so there's this bizarre situation where the majority of northern ireland want the backstop they think it's a good idea whereas the 10 dup members in there don't and it's they're they're basically holding the whole of that part of the country to ransom which on a slightly bigger scale everyone's quite enjoying because actually they don't want brexit at all this deals uh, a bit of a disaster for m- no no one in the country particularly likes the deal that she's got. Um, the Leave voters don't like it because everything that they were after was taking back control. And what this this deal does is it keeps hold. It, it means that the UK will have to follow EU legislation, but they no longer have any say in creating that legislation, which they do have now. And this is, you know, such a really interesting aspect when you're when you're analyzing any any uh, different thing where you have two people on two different sides is each individual is going to have one particular direction they're going to look at in terms of time. Okay, so you're going to have some people who are going to be primarily past based. They're going to be the historians of the world. They're going to be looking back at the past and they're going to be uh, claiming that, well, if you look at the past and you understand the past, then you're going to be able to not run into the same mistakes again. So it's all very past-based. And then you're going to have people who are very present-based, and they're going to be saying, well, all I really care about is what's happening now. Okay, all I really care about is what's going on in my life and the life of those that I care about right now. And then you have people who are future-based, where they say, hey, it's not really what's important now, it's what's important and how it's going to be, right? And so you have multiple different perspectives and this is just at an individual level but then you can have entire societies that have particular uh, stances one way or the other maybe you have a particular group of people who is primarily past based or you have a particular peep group of people who's primarily future based then you have the ones that are past based and the ones that are future based coming into a room to debate on a topic well what's the chance they're actually going to come to an agreement because there are all these under underlying assumptions that are happening just by the way they perceive the world. And this is just, you know, one of the many different ways that perception can change from person to person. 
So let's go ahead and get into this next clip uh, where Theresa May is really t- talking about uh, and hear the language here, taking a step back. Let's go ahead and uh, get into this next one. But Mr. Speaker, if you take a step back, it is clear that this House faces a much more fundamental question. Does this House want to deliver Brexit? A clear message from the SNP, but if the House does, does it want to do so through reaching an agreement with the EU? Yeah, and so right here we see some more of that framing right there, but she does it in such a wonderful way too, is is almost tricks them all into screaming out uh, no right there, and then you can see the smirk on her face as she's smiling. It's, um, yeah, it, it's a very precise and very clever um tactic that it's um so the way the way i say it is is she's putting a framing device on so she's saying if and if then loop if you want this then we need to do that she knows very well that uh there's going to be a section of that house that is going to say no to the whole thing and she does quite cleverly there isolate them out she basically um, calls them out as the SNP, moves them to the side, and then just carries on as if they're an irrelevance, which is, linguistically, it's quite an interesting interesting thing to do, in that you're never going to win any friends by doing something like that, but it plays to the people that you, if you like, in the audience that are most of the way with you already. Right, it's almost the way of like, if you were to be giving a speech, or you're a comedian, or whatever it is, and you you end up with a bunch of hecklers, right? Yeah. You you need to uh, deal with them, and one way that's pretty common tactic for something like that is to isolate them out, call them out, isolate them out, give them the attention, and then set them to the side, and then continue on. Um, so it sort of gets the rest of the audience on your side. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I mean, it's a great um, speaker's technique. I used to use that an an awful lot. Um, if I, you know, giving talks in public about this, that, and the other, uh, uh, say for example NLP. So I'd, I'd come out and have a little talk with the audience about who I am, what we're going to do, and all that sort of stuff. And uh, then I'll turn around to the audience and say, "Look, um, are there any of you people in the in the audience that actually know something about about NLP?" Uh, and I'd get them to raise their hands, and I'd ask a couple of them, you know, sort of, are you practitioners or master practitioners or something like that, until I've got them basically to to tell me that they've got uh, a certain amount of qualification for for NLP or the subject. And then I go, great. So whenever we have a query or anything to ask about, ask these guys because they're the ones that clearly know, you know. And and all of a sudden it puts a fear of God into them because now they're, do you know what I mean? They're, They're honed in on. But they're also kind of, uh, recognized and valued from from you know from me as the speaker as well. So it, it, it's a clever way of making sure that you've got you're you're in charge of the people that that are likely to heckle you, which is exactly what she's doing to the SNP there, because um, she knew full well that they would that that would be their answer and that they would be loud and vocal about it. Um, yeah, and they're vocal. And then what's interesting is just a few seconds later, she says, you know, and and the majority here wants this and then she just got a bunch of cheers okay once she said the majority wants this so she went from a no to cheers and i think that the way that that happened so so wonderfully is that she simply divided up the room and she put that in its in its place and then she said oh well here's the cheers and that's the majority and now you see now she can continue forward claiming that she is representing now the majority, or at least the ones that spoke up. Yeah, yes, absolutely. The other kind of interesting thing around all of that is that she's talking, she, the majority of people, uh, I mean, effectively what she's saying is the majority of people want a deal. Um, that doesn't necessarily equate to wanting her deal, but she's drawn them into that, if that makes sense, mm-hmm. you know. 
Yeah. Um, now, the next clip that I really love here is where she um, really gets into some cool uh, verbal techniques. Now, you want to pay a special uh, attention to how she frames everything. If you want this, then this. If you want that, then that. She's really going to be covering all of her bases right here. And it's really in, in a broad way that also includes some heckling, but she just she powers through it. So if you want a second referendum to overturn the result of the first, be honest that this risks dividing the country again. Be honest that this risks dividing the country again, when as a House we should be striving to bring it back together. If you, if you want to remain part of the single market and the customs union, be open that this would require free movement, rule-taking across the economy, and ongoing financial contributions, none of which are, in my view, compatible with the result of the referendum. If you, and if, if you want to leave without a deal, be upfront that in the short term this would cause significant economic damage to parts of our country who can least afford to bear the burden. Yep. I do not believe that any of those courses of action command a majority in this House. But notwithstanding that fact, for as long as we fail to agree a deal, the risk of an accidental no deal increases. So the government, so the government will step up its work in preparation for that potential outcome and the cabinet will hold further discussions on it this week. And now, so here she's basically calling out each group individually and telling them what they need to do based on their belief. And then at the end, she says, none of this, none of these groups have a majority. I don't think any of this is going to work out. So we're going to be planning for, you know, what's going to happen if we can't agree anyway. Right. And what's really interesting about this is that she has this this sense of be honest that this. And if you don't agree with that, the implied thing is is that if you don't agree with what I'm saying, then you're not honest. Okay. Be open that this. And if you don't agree with that, then you're not open. Okay. There's this implied sense of we're going to divide it right down the middle and when you get into something like honesty, like, oh, well, you're either being honest or you're not being honest, it's going to be very polarizing. And I think it's like Rentu said earlier about how it's not going to win you any friends. And yet she is in a little bit of a way winning a, a step here within the debate. Yeah. I, you know, there's so much going on in that in that little bit there. She's, it, it's actually a masterful piece of um, uh, speech writing. Effectively, what she's done is she's done exactly those things that you said. She's divided the divided everything into those three groups and said, "Well, if you're honest, it would mean this uh, for this group, um, and that means that it's not a great thing. Uh, if you're part of this group, then you need to be open to the fact that it means this, and therefore that's not particularly good." So she split everything into those three, taken the taken all of those away. What I find really cool about this is that so she's outlined three basic openers that say like well there's people that believe this and they're not being honest there's people that are being being like this and they're not being open blah 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 she goes down that mode and then she turns around and she basically says there's no majority there's no majority in the house for any one of those three options and if we haven't got a majority then the then there's this big danger that we're going to crash out the EU. Um, so she's basically turned around and said, well, there's th there's these three options available, but all of those are deadlocked. And if we don't do something about this, there's going to be major disaster on the uh, behind that. And then she comes riding in on her big charger saying, look, I actually have a solution to this all. So she's she's right. actually played the fear button in there as well, which I think was very, very smartly done. She's uh, effectively divided all the opposition into three sections, um, told them that they're not being honest or open with themselves, and the fact that there's those three options and none of them have got a majority means there's this huge danger behind it, and therefore isn't my approach a good one. Right, sort of setting up the villain, and now she's going to be able to uh, present her, her solution to the entire problem. Absolutely. You know. And that's what we're about to hear next in this next clip here. 
The vast majority of us, Mr Speaker, accept the result of the referendum and want to leave with a deal. We have a responsibility to discharge. If we will the ends, we must also will the means. And I know that members across the House appreciate how important that responsibility is. And I'm very grateful to all members on this side of the House and a few on the other side too, who've backed this deal and spoken up for it. Many, many others, many others I know have been wrestling with their consciences, particularly over the question of the backstop. Seized of the need to face up to the challenge posed by the Irish border, but genuinely concerned about the consequences. I have listened, I have heard those concerns, and I will now do everything I possibly can to secure further assurances. And so, in this section right here, the one big thing that really stands out to me right here is her sort of proclamation, if we will the ends, we must also will the means. And it's sort of right there, it's a it's if-then statement. If we will the ends, if we want a safe uh, retreat from the European Union, then we must also do what it takes to to uh, have a successful transition. Yeah. And what does it take? It takes whatever she says that it's going to take. Right. Ex- yeah, ex- exactly. Again, she's very uh, masterfully taken that, that whole... If we want this end result, then we need to we need to use the mechanisms to get there, and that's the solution that I have. It, yeah, it's again, it's a great framing device. The interesting thing around um, around all of this is just the fact that that no one actually understood the issues that 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 Northern Ireland border was actually going to give. Until people start negotiating the whole of this, she it's almost like an impossible situation to deal with because there's that if we're going to be outside of the EU, there has to be a border between us and the EU at some point, and the only land border that we've got is in Northern Ireland. It's almost like this is an unsolvable problem, but she's got a very neat way just there of actually focusing everyone on the idea that she she has a solution. She doesn't. I mean, all she has is this idea that um, we can create a backstop, which effectively is just a soft border, and that will stay there until someone thinks of a solution. That That is essentially just the solution she's got. But the way she's building it up there is uh, is interesting because... She's got to, this is where all the problem is. And there's a simple way of sol- solving this. It's a backstop. It's She's solving the problem of the negotiation without actually solving the problem of the border, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's also a clever way of her distancing herself from it too, because she was never in favor of the Brexit to begin with. And so she's simply, you know, proclaiming the assumption that if we if we have decided this then we have to follow through not necessarily saying that you know this is what she would have wanted but she's just saying you know we've already decided this now we have to do this yeah yeah uh, uh, that's that's kind of always been a stance it we're in a the uk is in such an interesting position with this because theresa may before the referendum was a was a remainer uh, Jeremy Corbyn before the referendum was a Remainer, albeit that he's got, um, he's always wanted to leave Europe, but based on his history, he's always been a Eurosceptic. Um, and then when he became uh, leader of the Labour Party, and then we had this referendum, he was a Remainer. And now, to all accounts, he seems like he's very much in favour of uh, of leaving the EU again. So we. In, in essence, we have both the Prime Minister and the, and the, lead, uh, the leader of the opposition both having changed sides twice. Um, and they're both, they're both uh, pro-leaving the EU now, uh, based on this, on this thing about delivering the will of the people, this referendum, which um, literally is... About a third of the voting population actually voted to leave, um, which really isn't enough to to um, 
for us to to enact huge constitutional change, which is basically what this is. Um, it's a very very interesting uh, situation. I don't think uh, it, it's an odd thing to say, but I don't think uh, people with persuasion the persuasion stuff only takes you so far. You need an uh, at some point, some facts, some information, some kind of integrity, almost. Uh, although I don't want to speak too well of uh, uh, of our political leadership at the moment, but um, there's there's some point where you can you can argue black is white uh, and vice versa, but eventually someone's actually going to you know get run over on the zebra crossing, uh, and that's kind of the state that we're in at the moment. We've had so much of being fed false information and it's not just over um over the referendum time the the business about who the eu are and what they do uh, we've been force fed such such an amount of um of false information about it it's difficult to understand what all of the implications actually are um and i think that's somewhere like a statement about the entire world at the moment is in America, you have the whole business with Donald Trump and fake news. Um, but I think when we got the technology to be able to look up so much stuff, uh, we've got the sum total of all of human knowledge sat on our phones at the moment. But what we don't have necessarily is is critical thinking. We don't have discer- uh, discrimination and discerning rights to be able to work out what's um, what's real and what's fake, what's you know what's fact, what's fiction, um, and therefore. What we have in people's minds is uh, a whole mess of stuff that that is effectively half truths and um, things that that people would like to think are true and stuff like that. So when we go back to something like uh, a lot of the Brexit issue was about immigration, and the fact is that most of the leave places were places that have very little, uh, you know, very small immigrant pop- populations. It's all about the fear of the immigrant than actually the immigrants themselves. You know, where you start talking about areas that have high, high, higher immigration tend to be voting to remain because they're, they're seeing the value of those immigrants. And we have so much history here and we have so much of a background. And how can any one person really know all of the various you know, facts and information and statistics like you had, you know, mentioned, you know, how much how much trade is being done through the particular border crossing. How can any one person know all of that? Well, what do they rely on? They rely on the media. They rely on their political sources. They rely on the people they know, but maybe the people they know don't know. And maybe, you know, and really what's a, it's a war of information of how who is actually being able to do the information. And so what Theresa May is claiming here is is that she's listened. She's heard those concerns. Now which concerns specifically? Well, again, it's information. Who exactly has she heard? Who has she not heard? We know that who that she has has heard is always going to be less than all of the voices that are out there. It's just the way it works. And now she's going to be delivering the solutions. She's going to be delivering the change. So in this next clip that we're going to be listening to, she's going to be telling us things on a very personal note. She's going to be going back to what she really feels and what is really personal to her. Let's take a listen to this one. If I may conclude, Mr. Speaker, on a personal note. On the morning after the referendum, two and a half years ago, I knew that we had witnessed a defining moment for our democracy. Places that didn't get a lot of attention at elections and which did not get much coverage on the news, were making their voices heard and saying that they wanted things to change. I knew in that moment that Parliament had to deliver for them. But of course, that doesn't just mean delivering Brexit. It means working across all areas, building a stronger economy, improving public services, tackling tackling, tackling social injustices, to make this a country that truly works for everyone. The Prime Minister must be heard. The Prime Minister. Tackling social injustices. To make this a country that truly works for everyone. A country where nowhere and nobody is left behind. 
And these matters are too important to be afterthoughts in our politics. They deserve to be at the centre of our thinking. But that can only happen if we get Brexit done and get it done right. And even though I voted Remain, from the moment I took up the responsibility of being Prime Minister of this great country, I've known that my duty is to honour the result of that vote. And I've been just as determined to protect the jobs that put food on the tables of working families and the security partnerships and the security partnerships that keep each one of us safe. And that's what this deal does. It gives us control of our borders, our money and our laws. It protects jobs, security and our union. It is the right deal for Britain. I am determined to do all I can to secure the reassurances this House requires, to get this deal over the line and deliver for the British people. And I commend this statement to the House. Wow. And we just hear so much persuasion there in the end and much like a good speechwriter, like a good deliverer of a speech. And we know, of course, that that was a rehearsed speech because at one point uh, she actually gets stopped and, you know, you hear the speaker saying the prime minister must be heard. And then she begins saying the exact same words again. Sure. Um, she now summarizes it up in this very kind of poignant way. Right. She's trying to sound more honest. Um, she she says things that are very, you know, broad. You know, so what I really like about this clip is this idea of how she's she's taking things to this personal level. You know, at that on the morning of Brexit, I knew in that moment that Parliament had to deliver. And then she just said, but that doesn't just mean Brexit. That means what? Working across all areas, building a strong economy. OK, let's go back to our ideas of nominalization of big words, right? Building a strong economy. What does that mean? tackling social injustices. What does that mean, tackling social injustices? It sounds good, but what does it mean? And here's the best part of it. To make, unspecified verb, to make this a country that truly works for everyone, that's not possible. Okay, that's not possible to make it a country that truly works for everyone, and yet this is what she's claiming. And of course... Making a country that works for everyone can only happen if Brexit gets done right. Yes. That's... And in her way. But what, what does done right mean? What does working for everyone mean? Why can it only happen if Brexit gets done right? Yeah, absolutely. There's a thing that she does an awful lot of at the moment, and she's, um, depending on who she talks to, she'll give you two options. Okay, so that's... Um, if she's talking to people that prefer Remain, she will talk about her deal or crashing out of the EU with no deal. Um, crashing out of the EU with no, with no deal is way worse than the deal that she's got, if you like. So she she's presenting two bin, uh, a binary option, one that's that's far worse than her deal. If she's talking to the Leave camp. She will talk to them about her deal or actually not having Brexit at all. So um, for the Remainers, uh, sorry, for the for the hard Brexiters, that's a worse idea. Uh, you know, staying in the EU is a worse idea for them than her deal. It's quite uh, an effective way of, of doing things. So effectively, whether she's talking to a Lever or a Remainer, she uh, devolves everything down to a binary option. Uh, one that's worse than her deal and her deal. Um, right, when in reality there might be some sort of a spectrum or compromises. Well, well uh, um, if nothing else, you could combine her, her her talking to the two sides and say, well, there's three options there. There's her deal, there's remaining, and then there's leaving altogether. You know? Um, so it, it's like she's taken three options, but, but depending <laughs> on who she's talking to, she'll only present two of them. You know? <laughs> Um, and I've seen her do that, so, you know, in several speeches and talks and stuff. It's really quite, uh, quite an int interesting perspective. And you, you know, if you haven't seen several of them, you may not ever recognise the fact that there was three things <laughs> that she started. With. Well, she's doing this throughout the whole speech, right? This is the patterns, the if-then pattern, right? If this, then that. She's doing it by segmenting her world into a black or a white. 
right? right? So there's there's this option or there's the other option. There's either the S&P who wants this, you know, who wants not to have it happen at all, laughter, 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 or there's the majority, right? And she's representing supposedly the majority and she only gives two options and it, it's in that way that she's kind of framing. She says it's either my way, my deal, or the highway. And you're leaving and you're going to crash out and you're not going to secure the reassurances. You're not going to have a strong economy. You're not going to tackle the social injustices. Everything is going to go badly. And, you know, I'm not going to tell you exactly how it's going to go badly, but I know you better stick with me or all of this other horrible stuff is going to happen. Exactly. Yeah. Well, I think that's all the time we have for today. We'd like to thank Rintu Basu for, for joining us here today. Thanks, Rintu. It's been a great conversation. Yeah, absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And remember to follow us on Twitter and follow us on Facebook. Remember how we have that Patreon page. The Patreon is the way in which you can support the show. And so for as little as buying us a couple of coffee a month, it's really not that much, you can support us on Patreon. So please look at the link in the show notes click on that click subscribe to the patreon and you're going to get all of the bonuses that we give to subscribers of the patreon and until next time we look forward to hearing your questions and comments and you can reach us at subliminallycorrect.com and we'll see you next time